out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Yes, indeed. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. I'm with you for the next 60 plus minutes. As you know, we love our indie pop, especially from the golden decade, the 80s. We thought it was grim. It's looking so much better now. But anyway, we also love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Scottish band, the Trash Can Sinatras, because I recently spoke to Frank Reader. I was going to say Frank Sinatra, but no, Frank Reader, sometimes referred to as Francis. It's a very confusing world. But anyway, this is Frank, this is me, and after about 30 minutes of casual chat about this and that life, um, we talked about social media and all sorts of things, um, which was very exciting. And then we got down to those early musical worlds, influences, that's what we love to talk about. And uh, yes, I was wondering what his uh, early years of music were all about. Frank, it's over to you. Uh, yeah, yeah, like I think a lot of houses at the time. Like I said, I'd, I've got five sisters uh, and a brother and three of them are older, three of my sisters and one particularly, Jean. Um, she's not the one who's uh, a singer now, but she was the one who was most into records and... She was very protective of them, but would try and sneak into her room. You know, I'm talking about the age of maybe 10 or 11. You know, I'd sneak into her room to listen to whatever she had, which was, you know, I think she was spending all her pocket money on records. There was always music about. In fact, I just finished that. Have you read uh, Broken Greek, the Peter Peter oh, Peter's yes. book yet? Yeah. yeah? Yes. Isn't it amazing? It is amazing. I did an interview with him as well, dear old Peter. Oh, he's a lovely fella. He is amazing, yes. Yeah. He, I just, like, just out of that book about a week ago, and it was just so, you know, evocative of, of how the feelings came up, and, and a really touching book, and even the sense where he got, the part where he got beat up, and, you know, he was I was a slight little kid as well, so I got my share of kind of beatings as well, but... um. It was just such a touching book about music, you know, and the power it had over him, and it was uncanny yeah. how the number of songs that he would mention that were, you know, still forefront in my mind as well. I still can sing them and remember all the words and remember where I was when I heard them. You yes, know, the, although they're not, you know, he loved the not, Brotherhood of Man, didn't he? Well, I loved Eurovision and I loved anything about all that stuff, you know. I mean, I went off it as I got older, but I, I just found it all kind of. I just found the same way. That, in the same way that he did, pop music really exciting, you know? Yes, absolutely. I loved records. I still love records. I've never been much of a one for gigs, you know? my I'm always really having to be cajoled into coming out and going to see a band. I just love putting records on. I always did and started buying them. Maybe when I was about 10 or 11, I started buying just what I heard in the charts. I had no, no way... Taste or faculties were being employed. I was just yes. So what were your what were your sisters? Up. What were your sisters' taste then? I mean, oh, she was a basic Rollers fan, so she was all that stuff. Tartan, she had all that stuff on in her trousers, um, and her pals were like that. And my older sister Edna, she was into Joni Mitchell, so and there was already seriously into the kind of more folky side of things, which is which had kind of died out. I mean, I wasn't a aware of hippie dumb really at all. By the time I'd 
been aware, become aware of music, it was really just about glam rock in the charts, you know. So basically, that's what Jean was buying. She was buying like singles that were in the top ten that she liked, liked to dance to, and um, it was quite a wide range, though. You know, she I can remember she had the Kids Are United by Sham Sixty Nine, and I found that kind of kind of weird one. And yeah. I'd put that on and go, all oh, right, okay. It was always a bit, you know. We always had a uh, uh, something with a tune on it, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. She didn't. She never really minded the genre. It was just the kind of tune. I think I've kind of inherited that. It's interesting because I, because my brother, who I kind of worship, was seven years older, and he at that period, it was the very, it was that period of prog rock for a lot of people. So, but oh yeah, but prog, <laughs> prog rock. Um, is really boys' music, isn't it? I'm, I know it it's, really a, it's it's a sweeping statement, and and uh, I might get picked up on it. But frankly, if you went to a Yes concert or uh, E, was it Emerson, Lake and Palmer, there would be a lot of men. Of a, of yeah, a for every, yeah, yeah. The Genesis always talk about how "Follow You, Follow Me" came out, and they started to have girls at their gigs. Yeah, after that, yeah. But it's interesting because sure because it's interesting you you know your sisters because obviously. Because even the, even if they're older, it was very unlikely they would have said, "Oh yes, do you want to hear?" Uh, I don't know, fragile by, <laughs> by, by by yes or topographic ocean. It would have been gentle giant, gentle giant or something. <laughs> you know, yes, I know. God, Barkley James Harvest. Oh God, Wishbone Ash or something like that with a great mm. guitar. So so it's it's interesting the Joni mm. Mitchell and and probably Carol King thinking that that's probably the other album that you would have had in the house somewhere tucked away. Tapestry. Yeah, yeah. So I think I started buying them around about six seventy six seventy seven. I would just wander down to you know like apartment stores, and uh, they'd have a little record section. I, I bought a lot of coloured vinyl, so I was buying things for weird reasons. You know, so there's I don't know what you like when you're a kid. You're just you're just drawn by be it colour. I, I remember buy all the Dickies records because they were coloured vinyl. But of course, I ended up loving them. I loved their covers of. Um, do you remember those guys? Yes, the Dickies. Yeah. Um, did they do the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, they had a hit with the banana splits. The banana the splits, one. yes. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, we look, the banana splits was a terribly exciting kids' program, oh, along with the monkeys, really. So, yes, the banana splits was classic. So they were yellow vinyl, so we'd have to go and get their clear vinyl version of Paranoid and their white vinyl version of Nights and White Satin, which is still a great record, Nights and White Satin, by the Dickies. I don't know if you know it. Mm, possibly. I mean, I remember a few years, decades later, there was a band called Snuff, who did a lot of cover versions at 100 miles an hour, which I liked. Right. Um, yeah, but the good productions of Dickies ones, though, they're still, they're still kind of meaty, you know? Yeah. And that's always a that's always a delight, kind of going back to these records from the late 70s that still sound good today. I think it was a really good era for kind of uh, things not... You know, ended up date, too dated, you know. And All those Joe Jackson records sound great, you know. Oh my God, Joe Jackson's On The Man and On Your Radio, On The Radio. Yeah. Just, um, Fabulous. Stunning. On The Man is a classic. And Look Sharp. Yeah, it is. Look Sharp was the album. Mm. So when did you start playing an instrument? Uh, well, once I started to sort of get into sort of following bands, it was which was like the jam, you know, that was like my first first band that I started kind of uh, going to see whenever they played. They seemed to play all the time. Yes. You know, they seemed to be like three tours a year. I wouldn't be surprised if I saw the jam three times in 1981-82 or something like that, you know. Um, and so, you know, 
Paul Weller was a bit of a a hero of mine, you know, and uh, I'd followed him about. Never quite got to the Maud Parker kind of stage, but I did consider myself kind of a Maud, but I wasn't just into the Purple Hearts or anything like that. It was just, you know, I was a wee bit more discerning, I think. Yeah. And uh, he was in the NME a lot. And, of course, the NME back then and was, you know, the, they assumed that because you were into music, you would be into, like, politics and books and art and other interesting things. So you get drawn in that way too, which is another thing that's kind of sadly gone, you know. It was through music and through music papers and through people that I liked that I got into other things that are not music, you know. Same with same with you, I'm sure. And so he started taking things really, you know, talking about things really seriously and music really seriously. And what inspired him was the Beatles. So I started listening to that stuff and Kinks and what have you. And uh, I eventually I kind of picked up a bass guitar. I don't know why. I think I got one from the catalogue, the Empire Stores catalogue, when I was about 14 or 15. It was a tiny sort of bass, you know, kind of a real a real guitar. You plugged it in and all that stuff. I had no amp. Yes. And I started playing bass along with records, which I'd, I'd, I'd saw a documentary on the police. And Sting had said that he'd played 33 records at 45 in order to hear the bass, so I started doing that too. I just, whatever somebody said you should do, I'd go ahead and try <laughs> and do it, you know. Yes. And so I started with the bass, and I still like playing bass, and I've played quite a bit of bass on, on trash can recordings, but it's usually super flowery, and my my bass playing's kind of likes to be present and heard, you know, that's probably why I'm a singer. Like Paul McCartney's bass playing is as a reflection of his singing, isn't it? He's just like, who wants to hear this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so yes. that was what my bass playing was like and I do like that kind of bass playing when it's done well which I didn't do it that well but so from then you know I thought well I should, should probably get a guitar there was a guitar around because my sister Edna was was playing guitar and is a good guitarist uh, by that point so yeah just probably about uh, late teens when I got a guitar but I didn't start playing it seriously till somebody told me to I've still I've always been a kind of deadline person can you do this? So I go ahead and do it. I don't really sit around and I never did kind of sit around and, and idly play guitar. I'm not a great, I'm not a good player at all, really. I'm a bit of a bash on a strummer, but it was enough to write songs, you know. So I started writing kind of three chord songs then, about 20, 21, yes. with friends. Yeah. Because it's interesting. It's quite late. Yeah, I was going to say it was quite interesting because the 80s, as it sort of trundled in, and as you said, the NME, it was so. Um, it had so much going on, didn't it? It was, it was, you know, because was it a writer called Stuart Cosgrove who? Yes, yeah, Stuart Cosgrove, who's still, still a very kind of uh, present figure. Huge debate, days. huge debates about playing, you know, reviewing rap music and and sort of including, you know, mm. lots of different aspects to what the NME was all about. Was it about sort of yeah. jingly jangly music? And then there was the political side. <laughs> and the eighties was kind of so angsty because. Thatcher had got in in 97, then we had the Falklands, then the miners' strike. There was a huge amount of unemployment in the 80s. And then there was obviously, mm. you know, the, the, you know, the job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes. And then the Red Wedge period. But, you know, speaking to a lot of bands, and I mentioned about the, uh, you know, the 80s and the mm. early period when, you know, a lot of people got kind of excited about trying to form. They mentioned often four bands, you know, like Orange Juice, The Go-Betweens. Mm. 
um, mm. the Smiths, June Brides, that was the other one. Um, oh. And so those four often get mentioned a lot. And obviously Orange Juice were hugely influential. Mm -hmm. Was that a band that was also on your radar during that period and that whole world of Alan Horn? As a late sort of developer, as I call myself, I don't, I don't think I was really aware of postcard records until actually they restarted in the nineties. That's when I started to really investigate what was going on in the eighties. I knew Orange Juice just through Rip It Up and what was in the charts when I was sixteen and seventeen, but um, not really. I mean, I love them now, and I. You know, I can totally see why they were they were they've they've, they've been so um, influential. You know, especially James Kirk's um, archness and their femininity. You know, was so odd. You know, when I look back at it, and very haircut one hundred. You know, as well. Yes. Um, but no, not at the time. At the time, it was like the jam, and it was still like it was quite edgy. And they weren't really, they weren't really on my radar at the time. Ones just now. Oh. So when did you when did the band start to sort of form? When did you start finding the other members? Like I say, we were in pubs, um, just starting to hang out in pubs, and uh, there was Irvine is like a small overspill town which got really big on the outskirts, and uh, everybody would flood into the old old town of Irvine on a Saturday night, a Friday and Saturday night, uh, a lot of pubs, uh, but only one or two really that were kind of safe, I don't know if safe's the word, but they were places where all the kind of goths and the punks and the people who were indie kids or whatever, you know, seriously into music, um, would hang about these these uh, two pubs in Irvine, you know, and stay away from the others, so we're really all crammed in together, you know. Um, and of course, we'd split into factions. There'd be the goth corner, there'd be the punk corner, and you know, everybody would find a way to kind of uh, fracture. Yes. But eventually, you know, you kind of, I think I started, I was on a job, I was on a sort of job creating, job creating course or some one of these things just to get you out of bed. I'd been, we were on the dole for about a year, and I, I, either signed up or was forced to sign up to something where you had to go in five days a week and learn what did we have to do we went on some kind of outboard course where we did kayaking and we right. also learned yeah how to do an interview everything there was a whole really wide gamut you know and at this thing i met a couple of people who were who were really interesting and creative and they were proactive and catalytic and I was quite a kind of like wandering kind of fart of a boy, you know. I was just kind of wandering about like, just what should I do, you know. I had no clue whatsoever, really. And I didn't even know if I could sing or play. I had no real ambition to do it either. I just wanted to be happy and safe and, you know, I was pretty kind of happy-go-lucky that way. Um, but these people were more serious about their music and their art and they were already in a band. And this was Davy Hughes as the as a kind of, uh, he's the steel rod through this story. So he was, he's still in the band today. So he was a guy that kind of, him and another fella drew me in and said, maybe they saw something in me, or I was just curious, you know. And so when we, when we, one of the things we had to do in this 
course, sorry I'm rambling on here, but one of the things we had to do in this course is uh, was make, make some music out of whatever we could find at the back, you know, yes. at the back in the bins. So we got some tubes and we cleaned them out and we got some trash cans and we, you know, they hit some stuff and blew into these tubes and I sang The Lady is a Tramp. And uh, we called ourselves the Trash Can Sinatras just for that day. And uh, it wasn't an attempt at doing anything and put, uh, other than just get through the exercise. But those guys, for some reason, asked me back and said, you want to do like a proper gig? So we learned about six or seven covers and uh, played a gig. I've got a faint memory of, I was playing bass. I'd borrowed a bass from a precision copy from somebody, and uh, I think, what did we do? We did, we were going to have a real good time together by the Velvet Underground, you know that one? Yeah. Uh, we started with that, so I was learning all this, and that was like, Davey was like, here's how we start, we start with like, we'll have a good time together, and I'm like, alright, that was my first lesson in showbiz, really, you know, and so... Uh, we uh, did that brand new Cadillac. I think I sang That's All Right, Mama. And we did Sister Ray. I mean, oh, so very good. Pretty, I mean, pretty the, motley crew of songs, really. Well, the Vince Taylor, the Vince Taylor is um, brand new Cadillac. He's such a classic. Yeah. I mean, and that's yeah, where it is. And David Bowie was quite inspired by dear old Vince as well. Yeah, isn't Vince Taylor uh, Ziggy Stardust or something? Yes, there was a sort of element. I think he he borrowed a bit of Vince who. He suddenly announced one night that he was Jesus Christ on stage, which went bad, went down badly, and I think he disappeared. Oh, and then he was British, Vince, right? Wasn't he? I think, but I think yes, but I think he was huge in France, and I think that's when he announced that he was Jesus Christ. And oh. and then David Bowie said that one day he was in London and he saw Vince with a map saying trying to find out where I think their spaceships were or portals to another universe and he thought oh he's really lost it now I think he's taken I think it was LSD but it might be wrong but uh, it was what I've heard of some good you know not they're not great they're interesting stories I think um, he had a son who talked a bit about Vince and um, yeah oh I'd be interested in that yes yeah, it's, it's brand new Cadillac I think is really people talk about Move It by Cliff as being the first British rock and roll record, but I think Brand New Cadillac's a British rock and roll record, and I think it predates it. Yeah. Ah, sure, yeah, interesting, an interesting tale, that. But we, of course, didn't know anything about I didn't. I just knew about The Clash at that yes. point. And that was that, really. And you thought, God, Joe Strummer's written so many classics. You thought, oh, actually. <laughs> exactly. He, he didn't write yeah. that one at all. Really, really. No. Good but, old. yeah, so that was the first show, and it was, uh, you know, sneered that quite rightly, by everybody else in a community centre. And then I thought things kind of drifted for a little while, for maybe, my memory says, maybe six months could have been anything between that and two years. I don't think it was that long. But then a couple of guys from that 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 project, or whatever you want to call that, that event, who were already in bands, their bands split up. And I'm hanging around the pub, you know, where all the bands are. And uh, John, it was, who asked me if I could come and sing. I remember him saying something about me having a good sense of melody. I'm just kind of nodding and drinking my pint going, right, okay. I don't know what that means. I've got a good <laughs> sense of melody. I really didn't. I never thought of myself as a singer. Like I said, when that show, I was, uh, that gig we were, 
uh, doing the covers, I was just playing bass. I think I sang one song, That's Alright Mama, which is the only one I could sort of do and play bass at the same time. But um, I never really thought of myself as group material, you know, yeah. which is strange because I'm very group oriented. I really like with people, you know, and for, for, compared to the other guys in the band, you know, some of the, John's very solitary and writes quite quite a complete song on his own, whereas I, d I don't really find much pleasure in that. I like the kind of group effort, you know, I like what it brings up. So when this is kind of the, the mid-80s, and this is a period which I've got, mm. where, where indie pop was really at its height because you had had, you know, like the Smiths had sort of hit the scene and had, oh, yeah. had mm -hmm. brought that aesthetic to the table and John Peel was there. <clears throat> playing lots of that kind of indie stuff you have obviously had the c86 cassette that came out as well and mm. you know so there was definitely and you know like the nme had a sort of circulation of i think a hundred thousand you had melody maker and sounds and record mirror so there was a lot of music about at that time plus you had all these kind of like every town had a a venue for an indie night of some description mm -hmm. and well yeah. a lot not everyone i suppose but there was a lot so there was a lot of music going around so did you start to as a band feel that look let's 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 see if we can because most bands you know they get together and then they they send a single off to John Peel who if he gives it a spin gives them that really big moment I mean mm -hmm. how how did you start to sort of develop as a band and and start to sort of you know cement your um path into the world that is rock and roll <laughs> By playing on wait Tuesday nights at, at, at places that were um, otherwise discos, you know, like Casper's and Ardrossan. Um <clears throat> So we just play a lot of shows and these, these not only, you know, there was a lot of discos around, so there was a lot of young people out. So there was a lot of places open and they needed to fill, um, they needed to make use of their place, I suppose, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And so we'd go... I'm in a radius of about 10 miles or so, no more. Ayr, Ardrossan, Stevenson, Cowen, and all these small towns around Irvine, Kilmarnock. And uh, we'd play shows, you know, to like ra rarely more than, say, 10, 20, 50 people or something, you know. Yeah. And we just we just loved what we were doing, you know. We just really got a thrill out of it. We were kind of bouncing off the walls. We were recording all our rehearsals with a, a ghetto blaster and just listening back to them and, you know, we probably thought we were like the bee's knees, you know. So we were kind of quite self-driven that way, you know. And then we got an offer to play in Glasgow, which was like, wow, dare we do it, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, we came to the attention of, I think it was like The List. We had a couple of Scottish publications, The Cut and The List, which was a listings, a time out type thing. But it kind of featured music quite heavily as well with articles and reviews and I think we got a little n mention in one of those and we just kind of followed our nose really that way you know edged our way into it we got support with the lilac time right who, yeah we made a we made a demo and we sent the demo off you know and uh, dance factory it was which was a promotions company in Scotland a promoter they put us on with the lilac time in Dundee so we drove all the way to Dundee and back on the same night to play with the lilac time and that got us to the notice of Simon Dine, who's still one of my best friends, and he worked for Go Discs at the time, and from there we were kind of quoted by them. They liked what they heard too. 
Yeah. And we were hopeless. We we had, we definitely had a kind of songwriting talent. John was great, you know, but um, especially and and I was kind of finding my feet and Paul too. But we were really hopeless um, musicians playing, at least as a group. We were. We were not a. We were acoustic guitars plugged into electric amplifiers and things like that, just making a hell of a racket. But something was coming across. Yeah. Yes. So then, because it's interesting, because when by when you were doing Cake, that was kind of mm. almost I would say one of the kind of high points of the indie period of the eighties. Did you um? Yes. Can you remember much about the recording of that album? Well, yeah, a wee bit. We got we got ourselves a publishing deal, I think, before we got a record deal, and uh, this was still at the t- probably the tail end of money being thrown at bands, and we thought the sensible thing to do would be to you know invest in a recording studio, you know, in Kilmarnock, where I had actually been working as a T-boy engineer. It was a place that recorded uh, tourist albums, banjo and accordion albums, you know, for the tourist market in Scotland. So I did that for a couple of years. That was my job. I went from T-boy to engineer. So I was at home in this studio and we, the guy was kind of looking to get out of the game at the same time that we were this kind of money in our hands and he said, well, here you go. We're probably well overpaid for this recorded studio. And so we were ensconced really and, and quite quickly became kind of hermited in this place, you know. I don't know if it was a good or a bad thing. Certain songs would never have happened without it being a place that we were hanging out and making music all the time, you know. We didn't have to we didn't have to book in or anything like that, you know. Yes. And we're, so and we were in this place, yeah. As Sorry. as investments go, that's that's a very I'd imagine quite a wise one to um yeah, yeah. to have yeah. something <laughs> Yeah, it was a big building. It was a big building, and I had four, uh, four or six rehearsal rooms at the back. So it was a wee bit for 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 a bunch of guys who didn't own anything to go to that was a little maybe too too much of a leap. But uh, like I said, without it, we wouldn't have had um, certain songs because things came up in the moment, and we could just dive into the studio. We ended up living there actually, but at the time of cake. We were um, uh, we were running it as a studio. We had a few bands come in, and we had the rehearsal rooms were filled with bands. Biffy Clyro was there, I remember. Um, more that would be later on, of course. They'd be they'd be there. But so we were in this uh, sort of constant recording uh, environment, you know, which was good and bad. I think we over demoed things. Cake to me is still got a bit of a tortured sound <laughs> when I think of it anyway you know yes yeah. and can you and you're, obviously you, you hit sort of a moment didn't you because you had obscurity knocks obscure knocks yeah which mm-hmm. you know it's always good to have a hit and that that definitely kind of elevated you to a sort of a bigger public and also I mean at that stage it was quite interesting because when because when the Smiths finished in 87 it felt like something had changed, you know, the party had altered. To be honest, Ecstasy came in and there was a big mm. big move towards the dancing, wasn't there, with Primal Scream and Happy Bunny mm. and Loop Dragons. Oh, and, yeah. and then you had that wonderful world that is grunge coming as long. So a lot, of the, up, in, yeah. a lot of those indie bands had slightly had their five years and thought, actually, no one cares anymore. We're going to give it, a, you know, we're just going to basically give, give music up and 
get the band. But you came along, you know, you sort of sailed through the, you know, the ecstasy world and also the grunge world, didn't you? I think we were out of time. I remember being kind of surprised by the mention of us being postcard kind of throwbacks and all this stuff to me was just, we were just making, we were like a squeezing a rag, you know, we were just getting out the music that we could get out. It didn't seem to be a, there was no kind of palette that we were kind of selecting from or anything like that as far as I remember, you know, it was just all instinct and um, cramming as many ideas and as many, um, they were, you know, they were cre de coeurs really, you know, they were just really, guys from the west of Scotland desperate to make music and had a, a bunch of angst that we wanted to get out and we were, we loved words and we were uh, good friends, you know, and so between us collectively we could write quite interesting and I think um, extravagant, a wee bit idiosyncratic because we always had like different in, different influences in ourselves and then we'd bring these to, to the songs, you know, so I do remember being out at being kind of like noted as not being part of Baggy or whatever it was called at the time. We were too late for the Mighty Lemon drops and all that stuff. And um, and maybe that stood us in good stead. By the time we got a second album out, people were talking about grunge and we were out of time again. And I was thinking, this is, this is kind of weird that people keep bringing this up, you know? And I think even when we got to like our third album in 96... By that point, we were just being kind of like uh, uh, accepted for who we are. We started to feel like we had our own little niche, although it wasn't that you know, wide an audience. It, it seemed like it was our, our wee thing. And then just after that, a lot of acoustic music started to started to kind of succeed in the charts, you know. And, yes. And but, but by that point, we'd kind of not deliberately moved on, but we were just always kind of changing and trying trying stuff that was slightly new for a guitar band as far as we were concerned yeah so i think that maybe kind of helped us sail through as you call it <laughs> yes. well, I suppose, you make it sound so pleasant yes well it probably it was probably quite rough at times but then you did have <laughs> sort of the, the, the wonderful world that was Britpop, and having well-crafted uh -huh. songs does did must have made you yeah i mean it was it wasn't probably a bad time to be sort of creating the music yeah but Britpop was Britpop from my perspective seemed very laddie and we were always pushing against that I don't think we were a very laddie band I don't think of us as, as that at all and unfortunately by that time we were not selling enough records for the record companies liking you know so we were getting we were we started to feel a little pressure because of Britpop being successful, I think, to alter the sound, use certain producers, that kind of thing. And I was quite obliging people, but I, feel, I felt like we were getting, our confidence was being kind of chipped away at, you know, bit by bit. We were no longer just acting on instinct and, and having it be accepted, at least by the people who were bringing it out. Uh... And, and, and enthused about and welcomed it seemed like it was always a bit of a pushback now like oh could you not just maybe make it a bit more guitar -y or this kind of thing you know you don't really notice it's a bit like the boiling a frog thing where you don't really notice you're you're getting your your confidence is kind of draining away a little bit and you're and you're 
instincts, you know. Yes. Which, so that kind of sent us scurrying away for for quite a while. Is know? that what happened during the the making of the third album, the Happy Pocket? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. That that it's a while ago now, but that was about ninety four. We made that, but it never got out till ninety six. We always seem to be take us ages to get records out. It's one of the frustrating things about music, which is thankfully kind of gone. Even just what's been happening in the past two has made me realise even more, like, the point in hanging around, you know? I never got the whole... I never embraced, really, like, being in a re- in a band that was on a record label, you know, especially a major record label. I found it... I think we all found it a wee bit of an ill-fitting... And an elephant suit or something, and so you know, it just seemed to take forever. And they were always, there were always kind of like, I somebody always wanted something remixed, and it could always have been better. There was that kind of feeling was starting to creep in, you know. Yeah. Things things can be better, whereas before it was, hey, this is great, you know. And did you at that stage? Because this is when you you'd been with Go Discs, but in the world that is business. And yeah, and capitalism that got acquired by Universal. Did that? Yeah. Did that happen when the album was coming out, or after it had come out? After, just after it had come out. Yeah, I think they had, they had some kind of hostile takeover. I never quite understood what people were talking about, but uh, I do know that we were just about to bring Happy Pocket out, and people were starting to disappear. Um, and uh, I don't think the record really got, I don't think it got released in America, which was our, you know, kind of bread and butter at the time. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it would have been about that point. Yeah. And then you had to, because this is when things start to get a bit more tricky, you had to sell the studio, didn't you? Uh, It was more like it was just kind of taken off us. We were very passive. We had a tax problem. As you can imagine, we weren't on the ball with that kind of stuff, and uh, we ended up kind of on the tax man. I don't know, I think it was about forty thousand pounds or something. It was like a fortune, and uh, we went through quite a lot of struggles with that. You know, I, was, I still kind of hold a little bit of resent, a fair bit of resentment about how we were treated. You know, because we were obviously not uh, intent on <laughs> swindling the tax man or anything. You know, we just had poor management or something and we had no money and all they did was keep demanding stuff from us you know and uh, we kept we kept giving them everything that we had and but they wouldn't go away you know until they eventually did go away which was the part that really got to me the fact that somebody could have could have had at any point in two years said to us you know you obviously have fucked up and uh, we're not going to harass you for this money anymore but they didn't they just chased us for two years put a lot of stress on us and uh, newspapers were kind of involved and uh, you know because they kind of start coming out of the woodwork the kind of sun and all that the Scottish sun came round to the house my sister was somewhat famous so they had an angle for for that it was very stressful on me and my family and for the rest of the boys too and for them just a whim, really, for one guy to say, you know, this is... It came across his desk, and he dismissed it, said, just, obviously, these guys have not, nothing, no money, they're just struggling musicians, Can let's just write this off. And it was all over, you know? But it was two years of of, of, of a lot of strain, a lot of 
strain on our relationship with within the band as well. We were lucky to survive it, really, you know. Well, God, yes. I mean, that's often... Yes, I mean, that thing... I mean, I would imagine most bands are quite innocent yeah. and naive when they start, and they don't sort of think too much about... Well, no one ever thinks that the, their musical moment is going to happen, because mostly it doesn't, does it, really? So when it does happen, it's, it's so fast that you can't almost... Um, yeah, you, you know, you haven't got time unless you're somebody like you too or Sting who seems to be very on the ball with getting management and people. You need a kind of Colonel Parker like Elvis, you know, to sort mm. sort that out. But most people don't. They just kind of think, oh, well, we've got some gigs, we've got an album, you know, everything's kind of okay. And then suddenly you get a, yeah. A, a you get your friends in, you know, because you want to be hanging, you want to like the people that you're hanging out with. And maybe my priorities at the time were more that, you know, than finding somebody who was um, competent. I know, tricky. So did that mean that the band finished at that stage? No, it never really did. It never really did. We, we, we always had a couple of songs that we were intending to finish and that, the, the, that sort of became two, three, four, five songs. And I think there was a, the closest we came to splitting up was thinking that we should at least collect these great ideas that we thought were great songs together and make one record just to get them out, you know. But that coincided with kind of things getting a little brighter and uh, in general, and uh, we started to enjoy it, you know, and the, and the internet by that point was given as a wee bit of a, a glimpse into another way of doing things, you know. Yes. That we could, that we could survive this way, because we were quite, I think, 94. Six round about happy happy pocket time. We'd started talking to fans on list serves and things like that. We had somebody at GoDisc who was quite on it with the internet, kind of far far sighted, and he'd given his advice and said, "This is something you should get into. You know, this is a thing that people are going to be, you know, this is going to be big in music. This thing, this and this thing, the internet." So we we by the time we had weightlifting done in two thousand or so we'd kind of we had a bit of a network we had a bit of a kind of fan base that was organized and we had a friend joe who still does our uh, online stuff in america who gathered you know like a what do you call it a database yes basically and so we could really kind of sell directly and we were doing pre-sale stuff in 2004 you know and uh we found that kind of sat with us i think What's been happening with us is we've been trying to find a way to be natural, you know, for like thirty-five years. Oh, that's kind of what it was like, you know, a way to, a way to make records, product, if you want to call it that, that that kind of sat well with us, and uh, kind of fitted our personalities, which is we're we're quite kind of hermit-like and shy, you know. Yeah. And you got to do, and I I realize you got to do, you know, reach out a bit and you know come out of your bedroom, but we we uh. We found like it suited us a lot, a lot more to sort of be in control of making the record and releasing the record and just adjusting our ambitions that way. I think you know, because it's inter- it's interesting because in when you did, I think was it um, in the music which was mm-hmm. which was sort of had come out. You recorded that. I mean, I've always, I'm always impressed that you you've recorded all around the world, haven't you? You haven't just stuck to one little place in Norwich or. Glasgow, you know, you, <laughs> that's you, still to happen, yeah. <laughs> that's still, to, but yeah. So you were, 
Yeah, it's just interesting that you were always mentioned to sort of, you know, you worked with John Leckie on that first album. He's yeah. an amazing producer. You know, you worked in some amazing studios. So you obviously get a lot of good attention and manage to attract, you know, some pretty amazing people and opportunities. I think so. We've, we, I mean, John was great and he came up to, sh- to Shabby Road, which was our studio, and, and worked there, which was the reason we got him, really. He was the only one who 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 was saying, oh, I'm quite happy to just go up and, you know, be in a bed and breakfast in Kilmarnock and record these. Maybe we were just, uh, maybe it was just coincidence that the two or three that we spoke to before that weren't that happy about. But, yeah, we, we were we were always quite conscious of our environment, I think, and, and, and the studio being a place of comfort. Maybe that was to do with having our own place, you know. Yes. So when we lost it, we... We made, we yeah, we have. A, I think in the music was made in New York, so yeah, it's good to have the experience, you know. Absolutely, and it's good to have the different, the different kind of uh, uh, camaraderie, um, the camaraderie of being together in a way, in a kind of a Wiedersehen pet type of thing, you know. It was kind of important to us, you know, Absolutely. because we weren't we weren't really hanging out the same way anymore because of the the studio wasn't there and we'd scattered around around the country a bit, so. It was a chance for us to be get together and talk as well, you know. Yes, absolutely. Because you you sort of started about a decade, eight years, fifteen years ago, getting a much more acoustic sound to the band as well. Was that to do with just that being an easier thing to do than try and sort of fill it out, so to speak? Um, I think I think well, obviously the songs were all mostly written on acoustic guitars so it was always a case that they they take a journey from there to something else so for them to sort of not take that journey uh, we could consider that kind of a more organic form of the song I think we just had had a love for that at that time and the music was recorded live we brought in a couple of extra players so that we could play it live all of it um and on top but but that you know just kind of that, that that kind of died off, and then the ambition to make our, la- our most recent record, which was made a, a completely different way, you know, with with different types of kind of sonic treatments, you know. And is that with was that Wild Pendulum? Yeah, Wild Pendulum. Yeah, which was which was made with a guy called Simon Dine, who I'd done a lot of work with. I don't know if you've heard of the Noonday Underground no. albums. Yeah, check them out. They're, they're, Nat Simon's an interesting, uh, an, an interesting producer he, and musician. He he collects these kind of sonic fragments and makes these quite strange and kind of itchy sounding. Did music, you say his? You know, did you say his surname's um, Dan? Simon Dan. Dane, as in uh, dining out. Oh, Dane. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, because you use pledge music, how did you find that experience? Mm. <laughs> um, well, pledge music went out of business before we got our money, so it wasn't a pleasant, pleasant experience actually. It was good up to a point with 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 well, Pendulum. It was a success, um, and I'm surprised. You know, it seemed like they had they had quite a established industry leader. You know, with with pledge music, but again, I don't know what it is. These bros are just overreaching themselves, and and uh, they've been out of business when they 
you know, again, we were owed about 40,000, which always seems to be the magic number when we either owe it or we're, or we're losing it. <laughs> so they went out of business where we were uh, fundraising for a DVD of a, of a, live, a live show. Um, yeah, so now I don't know. I think Patreon might be the next model that we try, you know. Yeah, it was good. It was it was good while it lasted, but again, you're at, you're still at the mercy of these these peop, these uh, venture capitalists, if that's what we want to call it, you know. And, yeah. You know, we 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 were just we were lucky that that we our fans had got the product that we'd made for them, including the kind of special editions and the beanie hats or all that. So we didn't have fans who were. Losing money. It was just us that lost money, but a lot of bands lost a hell of a lot of money, and their fans too. You know. Yes. No. I. I sort of. That, that, it was all about the time, wasn't it? It was just. Um, and yeah, some people just. I, it must make them cry just thinking. You know, thinking. A, you got to try and do an album, mm. which is obviously what you want to do because that's what mm. your passion is. But then to have that, you know, it would really take the wind out of the sails, really. Yeah. So, but it kind of. The main thing is still making the music and still making the records. So there is a yeah. I feel personally, I think it would it would change from from me to John and Paul and Davy. But uh, for me, the music's made, and I'm disappointed that you know that the money's been eaten up. It can get really stressful, but I can't I can't let it get on top of me too much. You know, the music's there and. It'll get to whoever wants to hear it eventually. And now we've just made some some new music remotely, you know, and uh, I think we're bringing something out in the next couple of weeks. So mm. uh, it just all feels like it's it's getting more and more um, in our own hands, you know. Every yes. time we move it out somewhere else, it seems to be a problem. Um, and just going slightly back just a couple of yeah, <laughs> sure. years There was the, you, you did a cover of The Smiths, I Know It's Over, which is a classic. Oh, yeah. So did mm-hmm. you um was that one that you were asked to do or did you pick that particular track? We got, I think it was like one of three that were left. It was like a project by a French magazine and they had we'd just done their tour. This magazine lives in Rock Optables. Um they do a package tour every year. I think it still still goes on. And uh, they'd asked us to do a track to celebrate this album, Queen is Dead being the the most you know the the subscribers most uh, favorite band uh, album, by the time I think we had Cemetery Gates, I know it's over, and another one that we didn't fancy doing. Uh, I don't think we would have picked I know it's over if we had the choice of all ten, but I'm glad we did. I think it worked out really well, actually. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, know, it, was it, a, it was a it was an interesting song to do because it was I find the I find the Smiths drumming kind of ploddy, quite generally. I don't I don't really enjoy listening to the drummer that much. So it was kind of trying to get away from the kind of plod of it, you know. Yeah, interesting. And yeah. Um, you were just saying that um, you you've got a record you're going to release hopefully in the next mm. couple of weeks. And have you got any other? Projects because I know you've you've always done sort of pretty amazing tours in Japan as well as obviously America, so you your fan base is very big and also I did notice on Spotify you have, you know like nearly twenty four thousand monthly listeners which is always is that good, it's good yeah I mean you know I mean it's it's 
you know, I mean, it's kind of interesting that with Spotify, though it probably doesn't give you much money, it does no. kind of mean that the people, you know, the fans can still access the music and that means you know you're still getting new followers which can be very important when you're out on the road so um yes yeah. so you're you yes japan loves you yeah we've been over there um, half a dozen maybe 10 times over the years they love their music in japan they love this kind of music that's for sure they have a, an affinity for for scottish um happy sad music as they call it <laughs> <laughs> and did you ever feel sort of part of the kind of a Scottish sound you know because there's like the Jasmine Minx the Orchids I mean Strawberry Switchblade not quite so oh, yeah. but there, mm. you know, there was definitely there's definitely a sort of a, a quality isn't there with a lot of the um, I suppose bands and there was a compilation mm. that came out on Cherry Red Records you know that collected a lot of uh, that music yeah. from that period yeah. so I just wondered if you felt any kind of kinship to to some of that indie stuff that had sort of originated. Yeah, I do. I do. I think a, a lot of it's. Uh, I like the heart of it, you know. I like the kind of poetic, more poetic side of that stuff, you know. That's what really, I really dug about Orange Juice once I got into them. You know, it was just the the hilarity of them, the lyrics, and the touching aspect of and I was learning new words you know as well which was always great um but yeah there was it feels like it was a kind of era just before us Jasmine Minx the clouds the early prime was screaming all that stuff so I never really felt like that we were part of it yes but I do enjoy it yes and what would you say because I mean you've you've actually had your adult life, your music. What would you say to an mm. an eighteen year old self starting out and um, thinking this is it, and they were just about to go in the studio or on stage, and you go, "Oh, actually, I'll just give you one bit of advice which might be useful." I just wonder what you would say would have said to yourself back then or now. Yeah, yeah, God, yeah, I got a lot of I got a lot of things I'd like to say to myself back then. Be nicer, be more kind, be be. Um, less pompous I don't know it's just a lot of defensiveness I was quite a defensive and kind of angry um, person I think at that time it's really hard for me to look back on it I don't I don't really enjoy it to be honest um, but I would I would I would it would all be along those lines you know I've given myself a reason to have fun rather than be so stressed out by the whole thing. I just find it I found it so uncomfortable back then, you know. I really didn't enjoy meeting record companies talking about strategies and doing gigs. I didn't like any of that. I just found them all absolutely terrifying. You know? Yes. I so I would I would try and calm myself down. Probably take take some Valium or something. <laughs> I don't know. Just chill. Just drink, drink less, and take more cannabis. Probably would have been it would have helped. Yeah. At very early days, you know, I was a, I was a nervous person. If I could calm myself down, I would. And did you? And did you sort of swap notes with your sister and say, "Blowing me, you wouldn't believe what's happened to me today." Yeah, we're very close. Um, she's married to John from the band, so we're very intertwined, really. You know, and she sang with us a number of times. She's a wonderful, like, an amazing person, just with a great attitude. None of the angst that I've got, really, you know. 
and she's been through a, a lot in the music business, you know, with fairground attraction and unwanted att uh, attention from, you know, mainstream media and NME and all that stuff, you know, the way a woman gets treated by the music business. Yes. And uh, she was just always so incredibly kind and encouraging to me, you know. I kind of teared up thinking about it. She's just amazing, you know. Without her, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have continued, I don't think. Right. She was. She just kept leading. She said, "This is it. Let's keep going." Yeah, she's very. She's very. She, she Edna's a really genuine, a genuine hippie. You know, she was living on the Bois de Boulogne in the mid seventies when she was sixteen, seventeen. She did all that stuff, and she sang on the streets of Paris. She's a genuine, genuine busker, a real folky. You know, and she did a little bit what you might call a bit of a detour with doing pop music. Now she's more into I think where her heart is. You know, in the kind of more folky scene, but she's genuinely a, a, a open spirit, you know. Yeah, and I wish I had it, you know. <laughs> and um, I'm sure you get asked this question every time. Every time you have an interview, but the Incredible String Band—did they ever sort of enter your kind of orbit in in sort of musical? Yeah, yeah, I like the, I like a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I'm, as 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 I got older and looked, you know, discovered more of of the Incredible String Band and usually you know you get I came to that stuff like most people through like Nick Drake and stuff that was more in the public consciousness you know yes but yeah yeah I think uh, I think that stuff's amazing especially we, I mean I think we were quite kind of pro we are quite kind of proggy you know we'd go, we'd go down quite kind of proggy paths you know um, but lyrically I don't think it's funny you mentioned earlier about Scottish bands and a kind of sensibility. I think of like Edinburgh bands and and Glasgow bands. I don't know what it's like down in Norfolk and Suffolk, uh, but you know that I, I hear a real divide between those. And the Incredible String Band always had that kind of a little bit arty. I would say you know associate them with something like Joseph K, or or. Um, the associates, you know, just yes. kind of angu angular music from the east coast. I don't know if it was the North Sea blowing the blowing the cold air down there, but the Glasgow and the West Coast where we were from, and the fan club, and you know the sort of soul scene of the late eighties and all that, loving money and all those guys, Deacon Blue. That was a much more of kind of American influence, facing kind of west, harmony based, you know, singing. I mean, it's people singing in harmony, and. So I would, I think of the Incredible String Band. They, they, I kind of lump them in that kind of area, you know. Yeah. Quite angular. Yes, sitting in stone circles in Calendish, sort of watching the moon set. The <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. From, yes, in those kind of yeah, because there's quite a few hippie communes in Scotland. There's Findhorn, isn't there? And there's there's Mike Scott's thing, yeah. Of course. Oh yes, yeah. and oh, and yeah. there's another guy called uh, Neil Oram at Drumla Drocket, which I remember visiting once. And oh yeah, he wrote oh. a nine-hour play called The Warp in the seventies. I think everyone wrote a lot of nine-hour plays in the seventies, taking breaks. <laughs> it was that sort of thing. But I think when you're, you know, just in nature in that way. You just yeah. you don't you don't really edit things so much, do you? Really, it's not so tense. I mean, you, you wouldn't get. I mean, Alan Alan McGee would would want something a bit more sharp, wouldn't he? Than than something that that doodled. 
Yeah, yeah, I think ambition. There was a, you know, the, the sort of ambition to talent graph things going on. I met a lot of bands growing up when we were together who were much more talented than we were and much more <clears throat> mercurial. They just never really had the ambition to push themselves and, and we somehow did, you know. And I think somebody like Alan McGee, there's a lot of ambition there, you know. Um, combined with talent too, but I think with somebody like Incredible String Band, I just know so many, remember so many musicians who were like that. They were just, you're, you're amazing, what are you doing, you know? And they're just like, no, I just want to, you know, do my nine-hour play or whatever, you know? <laughs> just a strange kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm doing this with my hands up and down where the, the ambition level's down here, but the talent's up here, you know? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's often the way. But then, yes, you, I always remember Neil Young, you know, he was one of those people who just had to follow what he really felt and just think, oh, yes, I'll be with Crosby, Stills, Nash and earn millions. It's like, no, I don't really want to do that. I just want to go and yeah. make, make an odd album and um, spoil, spoil everyone's expectations of what I'm going to be doing next. Right, right. And I don't know. I, I mean, I think about... It's people like him, and he he makes me think of Joni Mitchell, of course, a big hero of mine, and the kind of path that she's followed on her own is something that I just could never aspire to. You know, I could never be that talent. I'm just not that talented. You know, so I can't really um, identify completely with her. But of course, I've had my moments, and I enjoy so much the product of of what I do with my friends, more because of that, because it's something that me and these guys that I, I, I've been with all my life and I love and are basically my brothers, um, we've made something together. You know, that's the kind of, that's the kind of thrill of it for me, you know? Yes. That's... And singing too. I mean, I do enjoy being on stage and being with the band and, and, and feeling like, you know, I am kind of... A, I'm living in that moment and I can kind of improvise and be more kind of idiosyncratic with the songs, but I don't, it's just everything that it takes to get there. It's just, it's just too much for me, you know? It can be. Well, look, yeah. Francis, thank you. Frank. Yeah. Oh, I, put, <laughs> I just looked up at your, <laughs> I know after all this time and, yeah, um, it is. and I sort of thought, Oh, look, yes. Frank, sorry, Frank. That's all right. There you go. It's but, my fault. No. I Francis and Frank everywhere. Nobody knows what to, nobody knows what to call me. <laughs> it's easy. No, I was just looking at your um, email address. Yeah. And that's anyway. I won't. Uh, yeah, but Frank, thank you ever so much. And, Thanks a lot, Dave. And I think we'll call it a day there. Thank you ever so much for listening, and if you still are, I enjoyed it. Anyway, and that was me in conversation with Frank Reader, member of the Trash Can Sinatras. If you want to get in touch with me, you can, for some random reason. Um, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just go to at C86show. Always nice to hear from you. And also, I've been podcasting and archiving these interviews, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Pod. Been. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.